0: Welcome to the Ridley College podcast here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events including our public lectures a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought tune in to hear from leading voices on the new testament children's and youth ministry evangelicalism anglicanism missiology and much more
1: grace and peace to you from god the father and the lord jesus christ i'm pleased that without any artificial effort, it's entirely accurate to marshal my thoughts under three alliterative headings. Tonight I want to draw attention to the prominence of prayer, the purposes of prayer that we find in the Thessalonian letters, and to make sure that our theological study is never a dry academic end in itself, some practical pointers for our own praying, both as individuals before God, and as many of us are either informal or formal leaders among God's people. And we can launch straight into observing some of the prominence of prayer in one and two Thessalonians, what sometimes feels to us like a very small sliver of the New Testament. Now, of course, there's room to quibble over how we might measure the prominence of prayer, not least in a written document. And nor do I seek to be particularly statistically definitive tonight, Rather, I want us just to recognise that these two letters are entirely saturated in prayer language. And I can do that for us through the work of three scholars. First, and not very scientifically, we might consider the work of D.A. Carson. Commentators and Pauline theologians alike continue to point us to one of Carson's books, a popular level book called Praying with Paul. You might be familiar with it from its earlier edition titled A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And the image on screen shows the representative length of the 13 letters ascribed to Paul and his various co-senders. When we look up Carson's book, it's got eight chapters that are focused on exegetical study of particular Pauline prayers. And Carson's choices of passage is almost inversely proportional to the size of each letter. We find only a single chapter drawn from the first four larger books Four more chapters on prayer are drawn from the prison epistles, hinting that they, too, are also fruitful areas to study the topic of prayer. But three of Carson's chapters focus just on one and two Thessalonians. So from this very unscientific study, we might already pick up the idiom that Thessalonians is punching above its weight. But it's also appropriate to consider some more scientific kinds of ways of counting the prominence of prayer in the Thessalonian letters. And one reason that I'm interested in tonight's topic is because the prominence of prayer in Thessalonians is not always matched by the prominence in studies of prayer. Unlike Carson, many studies of Paul and of Thessalonians don't focus or single out the topic of prayer as a topic in itself. For example, there are various book length studies of Paul and his theology. I was reading one of the updated versions recently, and in 580 pages of careful, detailed analysis, perhaps 10 to 12 pages concentrated on prayer as a topic. Now, to be sure, scholars don't ignore prayer, but it's often just treated as a mechanism, as a vehicle for Paul's communications, rather than as a particular subject of Pauline study and even the tome that I've just mentioned is effectively using its study of prayer, not as a focus on prayer as prayer, but on prayer in the light of something else. For example, the place of prayer as it intertwines with the doctrine of election. And the same mismatch with a focus or lack of focus on prayer is true when we turn to commentaries on one and two Thessalonians. Now, it's true that not every commentary or every commentary series is focused on theological themes but some commentaries do bring out a number of systematic topics to the start of the book and include a few pages in their introductions. Commentators on Thessalonians tend not to study themes as a general rule. It seems to be that within Thessalonian commentaries, there's even less of this theological summary, but those that do have a theological summary at the start seem to be somewhat guilty of overlooking or underplaying the topic of prayer. On screen, we can see the kinds of topics that do earn attention. One commentary singles out persecution and peace, eschatology and endurance, election and faith, and these are very important topics in these letters. Another commentary picks out these particular Trinitarian categories. But for those that are there on screen, in those two commentaries, the word prayer is mentioned but once in all of that theological summary. Now, we don't doubt that scholars value prayer. We don't doubt that such scholars value the place of prayer in the ministry of the apostles and among the churches of the apostles. But such scholars haven't always studied prayer as much as they might. And all of this is not merely to whet our appetites to think more about the topic tonight. It also prepares us to pay careful attention to the scholars that do have something to say about prayer in Thessalonians. Those that put Thessalonians a little bit more Concentratedly under the microscope, particularly with respect to prayer. Among the common evangelical commentaries of the last 50 years, I found only one that really gives much airtime to prayer as a standalone topic in itself. And even then, most of the topics and discussions of prayer come up in the application sections that are appropriate to this particular relevant book. But it does also have some intentional entries in its theological summaries. So, when this particular commentary by Gary Shogren takes time to make comments on prayer, we should sit up and pay attention. Here's how I'd systematise the kind of things that Gary Shogren would introduce us to. He suggests that there are 136 verses in the Thessalonian letters. They're on the screen. I don't expect you to be able to read them, but of those 28 verses he counts are particularly concerned with prayer. That is, he'd say a solid 20% of the corpus, which I'm highlighting there. And this starts to give us a visual confirmation of the importance of prayer here. But once you start poking around in his count, it's clear that it's a conservative estimate. He's concerned throughout his commentary, particularly to focus on the prayers of the apostles themselves. So the highlights that we can see on screen don't actually highlight or include the discussions of prayer or instructions for prayer, the prayers that the Thessalonians the believers themselves are to pray. So, for example, if you can find the fine print, you will find that Shogren doesn't highlight the particular verse after which we've titled tonight's topic, Pray Continually. So if we want to get a sense of the wider contribution or the wider identification of verses relating to prayer in the Thessalonian letters, we need to turn to another substantial work, itself now nearly 50 years old. The work of Gordon Wiles is regularly endorsed by modern commentaries. They're quite content with his research from 1974 and before. It would seem that many modern commentators these days are happy just to reference his work rather than to replicate or repeat some of his emphases on prayers. And so by turning to Wiles, we'll start to find some of the foundational assumptions that lie behind modern scholarship on prayer in Thessalonians. And we find that Wiles will identify even more verses related to prayer in these two letters. First of all, simply he just identifies more verses. And you can see on screen that I've shaded some more verses. And not only are there some more of the brighter, thicker highlights, but there are also some additional lighter shadings that I've added as well. And that represents part of an ongoing debate about exactly how one defines a prayer. How does one delineate the prayers in any epistle and including the epistles one and two Thessalonians. So for example, Paul and Silas and Timothy start their letter, just as Paul will go on to start most of his, with a thanksgiving prayer. And then they turn from the thanksgiving prayer to the basis for their thanksgiving. So from the opening verses of the first letter, verse two, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Why? Verse four, for we know that God has chosen you And then many more verses about why it is that they're praying. That raises the question, should we count the explanation of the prayer as part of the prayer? Certainly that contributes to our understanding of the prayer. And the way we choose to define our prayers will define the number of verses that we get excited by. And if you're watching the visual representation, halfway down that first column, you'll notice that there's a lengthy Explanation of the prayers, which suddenly bursts into another more direct thanksgiving. That's the big thick highlight in the middle of that first column. Then there's some further elaboration for their thanksgiving before at the bottom of the first column, we find again a more direct prayer for the Thessalonians. Now scholars are split roughly 50-50 as to whether we should count that whole column as part of the thanksgiving prayer or whether we should just pick out the three main direct reports. Everybody agrees on those particular reports. But the question then becomes one of how do we describe these intermediate explanations? Are they part of the prayer? Are they something related to the prayer? Are they something slightly different? We can see the same phenomenon when we turn to two Thessalonians in the schematic on the screen. Two Thessalonians begins near the bottom of the second column. There's an opening thanksgiving that runs towards the bottom of our column there. And that segues then into some pastoral assurance before again asserting itself as a more obvious prayer. And again, I've likewise given here the bolder, more confident shading, but also some of the lighter shading showing verses that may well be connected with those prayers. And again, my task this evening is not a statistical one, so I'm not particularly worried about exactly how many verses we count as prayers, related to prayers or not related to prayers. I'm not particularly worried how we might classify those lighter shaded sections on the screen. But they in themselves point us to one of the second major contributions of Gordon Wiles' study. If we look at this schematic and next time you sit down with the text of one and two Thessalonians to read them, we find that these prayers don't just occur. They don't just occur frequently. They don't just occur in many verses, but these prayers fall at significant structural points in the letters. They're not just random where they fall. In a very simplified way, we might describe the first letter as falling in three parts and these boundaries are generally agreed. We start off with the apostles thanking God for the Thessalonians, recounting the past, both the Thessalonians conversion and the apostles' own ministry in bringing the gospel to them. And whether or not we think all of that opening section is part of one continuous thanksgiving, certainly everybody agrees that it begins and ends with substantial reports of the thankfulness that the apostles offer to God because of how the Thessalonians first responded to the gospel. Then we see the second section in the middle of the letter focuses on the apostles' present experience. Once they hear back from Timothy that the Thessalonians are still persisting, there's even more overt prayers as the apostles petition God for their congregation. In strictly formal terms, this prayer concludes the middle section, that's how it's usually treated, but its contents, like many of Paul's other prayers, also presages some of the themes that are still to come. It becomes a transitional kind of prayer that takes us from where we've been to where the remainder of the letter is going. And those remaining themes concern how the Thessalonian believers should live while they wait for the future return of Jesus. What we see represented here is how the letter's prayers fall at these important junctions within the letter. Some are fairly perfunctory. There's the common standard greeting at the beginning, grace and peace to you. There's the standard closing benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's an opening thanksgiving, which Paul will come to include in virtually all his letters. And again, scholars regularly note that not only these uh, are prayers in themselves, but these prayers map out something of where the letter is going. There's something like a table of contents of what's to come. But particularly in Thessalonians, in addition to these opening prayers, There are many more prayer texts. And again, we can see just from the rough schematic on the screen that they fall particularly at the conclusion of each of the major parts of the letter. And when we turn to the second letter, we find the same idea of prayers falling at key junctures. If we give a quick sketch of two Thessalonians, there's the same opening Thanksgiving. It starts the letter and potentially runs right through to the end of that chapter where there's another overt prayer report. The second section, the middle part of our right-hand column, likewise concludes with discussions of prayer and some actual praying. And then the third section, which constitutes our third chapter, both starts with further requests for prayer and finishes with some standard blessings. So already we might start to anticipate some of our later discussion of how this kind of insight might influence our own praying. If we happen to be engaged in written correspondence with other believers, how much overt praying do we include at all? In our overt conversations with other believers, how much overt praying or reports of praying do we include? If we include anything at all, particularly say in a written correspondence, is it something like a perfunctory element just at the start and or at the end? Or in terms of quantity, do we start to include other chunks of prayers in our communications? If we do include these larger chunks, Where might they fit within the flow of our correspondence? The image we're seeing here is that the prayers are substantial conclusions to each section, a way of climaxing each topic and a way of commending each of these issues to God. I find myself wondering if these prayers themselves might end up being the key elements of each letter with just some intermediate material packing them out. I'm not quite confident to say that at this stage, I don't think that's exactly how things are working in these letters, but it's one more way of recognising the quantity and the frequency and the spacing of these prayers. A number of scholars also recognise that perhaps the apostles expected this letter to be read out and to be read out as part of public worship. Certainly the very first letter closes with a direct instruction that this letter must be read to all the believers. And the second letter carries very similar implications. That in itself would raise a whole new series of questions about how the letter's contents might have been crafted with such a liturgical kind of setting in mind. But even without having to require such a public church based setting, the public nature of these letters might also spark us to think how we might use prayers in our public gatherings. Are our prayers merely perfunctory, something we say quickly at the start and the end just because that's what we do? Where do prayers fit in at the transitional junctures in a church service or a Bible study or similar? To what extent do our prayers capture the sentiments of what's come precedingly and what happens in the prayers that might propel us forward into the content that is to come. Certainly we do do that and it's great when we do that and we see that endorsed by what we see here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Practically speaking we know that in a public gathering it's much easier to pray in an informed way when the participants know what will have been preceding their prayers and what will follow their prayers. It's a much harder task in denominations where we might divide up the roles in a service such that the person offering the intercessory prayers may not have much idea about the content of the sermon. So, I would suggest that uh, many of our informal and our formal liturgies might lead us to keep prayers in somewhat siloed parts of our gatherings. Now, we do have some service leaders and some preachers who can leap directly from addressing the congregation to addressing God. Sometimes I even find that a bit of a rough gear shift because they've changed. It. Direction and address in their minds and I have to catch up to speed up with that But I'm equally confident uh, that many of us may not be used to that kind of break We've got particular rules in mind about how things should work I wonder how you might feel right now if I were to suddenly burst in the middle of a lecture into a prayer Our great God Father Son and Holy Spirit We thank you for your insights that you may already have been stirring in us so far this evening And we ask that you might continue to shape our prayers and our ministries in the remaining minutes that we share studying your word. Amen. Now I acknowledge my prayer just now is a pale imitation of the kinds of prayers that we see in Thessalonians. My prayer was rather generic and not as closely tied to content as the prayers in these letters are tied to the content of these letters. But I intend my prayer just then to further consolidate and to illustrate some of what we might be learning right now. Already we're starting to think about the purposes of the prayers in these letters and as we leave our schematic of the letters we can indeed see that several of the prayers are transitional. They tidily summarise some of each preceding section and they foreshadow some of what's about to be addressed in the coming sections. But not only do these prayers help us to maintain the flow of the letters, to follow along and to keep moving with the letters, they're also a part of the apostles' pastoral formation of their congregation. When Paul and Silas and Timothy pray for believers, it's one more way of commending their instructions, their reflections, the commands that they've just written. Several times in the letters, not quite in direct prayers, but in an indirect kind of way, the apostles invoke God and God's name to verify the authenticity of their ministry and their instructions. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the apostles insist, we speak as those approved by God. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And they immediately continue, you know, we never used flattery nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And a few verses later, again in verse 10, we find, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. So we find that when the apostles turn into prayers, the contents of their letters and the responses they're hoping for from the Thessalonians, they're further authenticating the godliness, the Godworthiness of what it is that they've written. They're assuring the Thessalonians by turning these things into prayers that the apostolic instructions are the kinds of claims that can be made in front of God. And of course, they want the Thessalonians to be confident in God's work. So the apostles repeatedly thank God for his past work in the Thessalonians, and the apostles regularly urge the believers to trust in God's ongoing work, even as they face ongoing opposition. So they back up their theological claims with their pastoral actions. They demonstrate their prayers of thankfulness and commendation. Indeed, one of the challenges that we face in trying to work out where the prayers might start and stop in these letters, is that these authors so regularly alternate between theory and practice, between doctrine and prayer. Among several passages, we might look here at one of the transitional points in the second letter but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And then the sentence continues in Greek, He called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find that the prayers, the more overt parts of the prayers here, direct the believers hearts and their gratitude to God for his work And this prayer falls at a point where the congregation needs to be assured that God has not left them at the mercies of the world, has not left them to the mercies of unbelievers who delight in wickedness, so say the surrounding verses. And we can be confident in this kind of interpretation because that very passage continues the same kind of mixing of prayerful formation and prayerful authentication continues, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And these instructions that the apostles give are immediately paired with prayers to achieve that very instruction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. The apostolic content and the apostolic prayers work hand in glove. And all this is to acknowledge that some of these prayers serve as yet one more vehicle through which the authors form and teach their congregation. I wonder if some of us might balk at this thought as if it's somehow impure or even deceptive to engage in some of our teaching via prayer. It's true that, Some public prayers can smuggle in additional information in a variety of different ways and sometimes in unhelpful ways. And so some of us might have become cautious about this because we've seen the way that information might be freighted into a prayer. And thus we might be cautious about turning any kind of content into a prayer. And yet we might argue that virtually every prayer in one Thessalonians and two Thessalonians, it does include some teaching content. We've just seen that one central block of prayer in the second letter interweaves prayers and direct instructions together. If we turn back to the start of that second letter, we see the very same thing, albeit in different ways, at the start and the end of the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. Why? Because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Again, we might protest that these verses are more an announcement of prayer, a report of prayer, rather than an actual prayer. And that's a phenomenon that I'll come back to address before we're finished. But even if we're not sure about exactly how to classify this opening prayer-like material, the... Prayer at the end of the chapter, while still technically a prayer report, is hardly distinguishable from an actual prayer. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, your every deed prompted by faith. We can hardly avoid the conclusion that here, in a prayer, our apostles have smuggled in some of their teaching agenda and some of their agenda that we'll find in both letters. And we know this because when we look through the rest of the letters, we find the language here in their prayers, the same language that is elsewhere in their letters and in their overt instructions. One final example of this particular phenomenon is seen in the corresponding Thanksgiving at the start of the first letter. Scholars and pastors have been well attuned over the last 50 to 80 years that these opening Thanksgivings can indeed function like something of a table of contents. And we'll admit that the opening Thanksgiving here in 1 Thessalonians isn't quite as detailed or as prescriptive of what's to come as we might find in say Romans or 1 Corinthians. But nonetheless, we don't need to have a great grasp on the content and agenda of the Thessalonian letters to realize that even here in this Thanksgiving, that famous triad of faith and love and hope, often in that particular order is behind much of the content of the letters to come. And as well, The apostles here praise God for the resulting work and labor and especially the endurance that these produce. We might even note some more subtle elements of this style of teaching. Whether or not we might think it's a little bit underhanded, interpreters of passages like this one acknowledge the impact that this Thanksgiving has. If our authors are publicly praising God for his work in the Thessalonians, And this adds some tacit weight for the believers to keep generating the same kind of work and labor and endurance. We can find that these apostles by praying in this public way in front of their congregation are setting the bar rather high and here and in other prayers, they reinforce the standards that they might also teach in more obvious teaching parts of the letters. And again, I hope your minds might be racing as you think about different ways that this anticipates some forms of application of what we're hearing this evening. In a Bible study or in some other church gathering, to what extent might we allow the specific ministry goals of our gathering to give shape to our prayers? Are we confident enough in today's ministry goals that our prayers might be more than just a generic be with us in our meeting or teach us to hear and respond to your word? Already in preparing this material it crosses my mind that while I love having student involvement in class and I regularly call for students to volunteer at the start of each session, by definition I'm the person in the classroom has the clearest idea where the next hour or two is going. So perhaps in next week's classes I need to be volunteering to pray and to pray more specifically about where this learning encounter should be going. We might also notice from Thanksgiving's like the one in front of us, a very simple observation that's both simple and confronting that many of these prayers like this one are much more about long term doctrinal content and application than about immediate felt needs. Paul and Silas and Timothy don't pray that their congregation will be seated comfortably as they settle down to listen to this letter over the next few minutes. Rather, they pray that their congregation will settle in, however uncomfortably, for the next few years and decades, as they persevere faithfully and hopefully until the return of Jesus. Now, please don't mishear me. I have no objection to prayers concerning what we might call social or psychological factors. But when we study the prayers of the New Testament, we find that apostolic prayers typically can address those kinds of personal factors by raising their eyes towards much broader and more theological horizons. And so our apostolic authors use their prayers for rhetorical transitions. They use them to pastorally form and authenticate their ministries. And they use them as part of their teaching mechanism to appeal to the minds and to the hearts as a further vehicle for teaching. But nor should we overlook one further important purpose of these public prayers. Our authors report their own prayers, partly so as to be a model for the prayers offered by their congregation. We can verify this observation from common sense, we can verify this from historical context, and we can verify this from the biblical text itself. No less around the ancient Mediterranean world than today, we might imagine that healthy habits were as much caught as taught. So I remain grateful that such a strategy still works in many cultures today, including ours. I'm really appreciative that in the local congregation of which I'm a part, it was originally comprised largely of young adults, but one older couple strategically chose to intentionally join in with this younger crowd, intentionally so that there might be some more experienced believers walking alongside the young adults, intentionally to share something of their wisdom in everyday events, and especially intentionally to put themselves on the prayer roster and on other rosters, so that they might model how more experienced generations can pray. And this is one of the burdens of Carson's book on Paul's prayers, that we ourselves might pay more attention to the biblical prayers and that by following those models, in turn, we might refine our public prayers and be good models for others. And this common sense approach comports well with the actual circumstances of the Thessalonians. Debate continues over just how short a time Paul and his team were personally present among the Thessalonians before they were torn away. They use the language of being orphaned by opposition to their ministry. But the general reconstruction of the situation recognizes that we should be thinking in terms of Paul and his team being with the Thessalonians for a number of weeks or months certainly short period of time rather than something closer to years. So just as we can read that the apostles use their letters to teach and remind the congregation about issues such as Jesus return, we can be confident that they use their letters to further instruct their inexperienced congregation in matters of prayer and not least by modeling prayers for them. It's also uncertain how many of the converts had had a background in the local Jewish synagogue and its prayer patterns. And how many, as 1 Thessalonians explicitly says, had turned to God from idols. But either way, our beloved Leon Morris, who's got three books focused on Thessalonians, himself frets that here was a congregation, and I quote, a congregation with no tradition of Christian service to observe, no host of godly Christian examples to follow and whether or not they buy into exactly those reasons, lots of other scholars certainly agree with Leon Morris that many of the Thessalonian prayers are written expressly as models for the Thessalonian congregation. These prayers have been penned intentionally as model prayers, as pattern prayers for new believers to pick up and to grow in their own praying, something for them to imitate. I've already alluded to the possibility that some Christian letters like these ones might almost be or be a part of a rudimentary liturgy designed for early Christian readers, perhaps even in a public setting, perhaps even we might say a rudimentary prayer book for them to take, to learn from, to imitate. And I'm confident in moving in this direction because even the biblical text itself endorses such a conclusion that prayers are an intentional model The letters themselves praise the Thessalonians for their imitation of other godly models, whether they've been imitating the apostles, whether they've been imitating Jesus, whether they've come to learn of some other churches that they've are starting to imitate. And the letters command the Thessalonians to do this kind of imitation. The second letter expressly says, it is necessary for you to imitate us apostles. Now, the particular issue in that paragraph concerns the need for them to work manually to learn an income, to earn an income just the way that the apostles themselves had. But attuned to that particular example of imitation, we start to see other ways throughout the letters that the apostles hold themselves up as models to be emulated. One reason we join scholars in their confidence that the prayers of these letters are also intended as model prayers is because of the way certain prayers or certain passages are juxtaposed. We might look at the start of 2 Thessalonians 3, where the apostles request specific prayers for themselves, and then they immediately turn around and start praying almost exactly the same contents from their requests for the Thessalonians. We find in perhaps a different way, but the same end, that instructions and examples sit side by side, and this is visible elsewhere in the text. So tonight's lecture is titled after the terse instruction to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And we find that very same term, continually, without ceasing, used in the apostles' own reports of the ways that they pray earlier in the letter. So looking through our summary list of purposes, we might readily conclude with our friend David Peterson from Moore College that such prayers, and particularly the prayers in 1 2 Thessalonians, are not only some part of the letters in which they appear, they're not only some part of just a written communication, but they're also a direct part of our church planters ongoing teaching and pastoral ministries. Now I've already crafted my observations in such a way that already we should be spurred to consider how this might further refine our public praying and our own personal praying as well. But in our concluding minutes tonight, we might draw together some of these pointers, as well as sprinkling in a couple more observations that I haven't teased out so far. We've already seen, and at some length, the way that our authors take time to pray and to show their congregation how they pray. No doubt they prayed many more prayers that have gone unreported in the letters. And yet our authors have taken some time and we should add our authors have taken some personal cost because writing and sending letters in the ancient world wasn't a cheap exercise like email is today. Our authors have gone to this trouble to include not even just one or two examples, but many such examples of how to pray. They want to be model prayers and offer model prayers for their flock, as well as to press home some of their core theological values. We're reminded that by telling others what we pray for them, We both encourage them and encourage the correct direction for their gratitude. I myself have been heartened not only by hearing that people have been praying in advance of this lecture tonight, but some of them have shared with me what it is that they've been praying for the lecture tonight. Now, there's some obvious encouragement that comes simply from the fact of this, but it further directs any praise and thanks not towards my efforts, but towards anything that God works through me. And this in turn is then an excellent tool that I might use in my own individual care for other believers. Whenever I shoot a text message through to a musician or to some other service participant, I might not just thank them for their work, but I might tell them that I thank God for their nifty guitar skills. It acknowledges their efforts, it acknowledges my enjoyment of the results, but it also helps to aid my fellow believers to recognize how God is working in them and through them. And although more in passing than in any systematic way, we've also started to see the varieties of the kinds of written prayers that we find in parts of the New Testament, the different ways that they're recorded and reported. Not every prayer in the New Testament is actually a prayer. If we take a strict grammatical definition that a prayer must be spoken directly to God and addressed to him, then we'll suddenly discover that there are very few prayers in the New Testament at all. We often find descriptions of prayers as we do throughout the book of Acts or here in the letters of the Thessalonians. I've mentioned tonight the study of Gordon Wiles and how scholars continue to adopt the very kinds of categories that he and others of his generation were introducing. There might be some direct prayers, but there are also prayer reports like the ones I've just described. There's another category, again, which Wiles calls wish prayers, an arm's length kind of prayer. And that's how many of the more liturgical prayers, even in the letters, start and end of letters tend to work. We're familiar with the lines, may grace and peace be to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who are grammatical pedants are right that these aren't prayers in the same way as other prayers might be that directly address God but it would be a brave grammatical pedant who denied that these third-person kinds of reports are prayers at all. We might simply observe the famous ironic blessing that many church traditions happily adapt and adopt works exactly that same way. It's not a prayer addressed to the Lord, but it's a prayer addressed to the congregation, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And so we ought to recognize that we might start to discover a variety of ways in which prayers are reported and a variety of insights that we ourselves might gain from these prayers in the New Testament, whether here in Thessalonians and wider. There are direct prayers, but there are also indirect prayers. There are model prayers and there are further instructions about and descriptions of praying. And we should be open to learning from all of them, not just the ones that are directly addressed to God. And this opens our eyes to a particularly important phenomenon, that some of those not quite direct prayers are addressed to Jesus. Now, I'm particularly guilty of getting this wrong. For a variety of theological reasons, I've been a happy acolyte of the precision idea of praying to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And I can happily justify this for a whole bunch of different reasons not least because when I search the Bible or when I ask Ridley faculty or when I consult a number of journal articles, they regularly point out that there's a tiny number of biblical prayers that are actually addressed to Jesus. We can narrow it down to just one or two. And if we're feeling generous, there are a couple of other potential opportunities, but a tiny number of small prayers addressed to Jesus that I can count on one hand. But once we start to allow prayers that are reported in less direct forms of address, then we discovered that there are quite a number of prayers that are addressed to Jesus, and many of them, and many of the most startling ones of the examples are found here in Thessalonians. I'll close shortly with a prayer from the middle of one Thessalonians, which is addressed to both God the Father and our Lord Jesus. A different prayer that we reviewed earlier from the center of the second letter even dares to reverse these names. It pitches the prayer to our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Indeed, we might simply remember both from the rest of that prayer and from many others that whenever epistles invoke the Lord, they're especially invoking the Lord Jesus in particular. Just as when 2 Thessalonians prays for peace, peace to you from the Lord of peace. Now, this might be no shock or surprise to you. I know many Christians who happily address prayers to Jesus, and I'm theologically open to that practice, but I have to say that the more I look at the prayers in the Thessalonian letters, I now start to find some great exegetical and textual warrant for such prayers as well. It's changing my prayer life. I wonder if it will change yours. I'll conclude with two shorter points. We've noticed how many of the prayers in Thessalonians are prayers of thanksgiving. By some counts, thanksgiving takes up a full half of each of these two letters. And once we notice this in Thessalonians, we might start to notice how many thanksgivings there are throughout other parts of the Bible as well, New Testament and Old Testament. And I'm not convinced that I see this proportion of thanksgiving in my own prayers or in the prayers of many Western churches. I'd hazard a guess that we're simply not always adept at admitting our needs or the depth of our dependence on God. And conversely, we're often blinded by Western lifestyles that tell us that it's about being comfortable and particularly it's about being self-made. But the prayers from Thessalonians join many other prayers from other cultures past and present across many generations in devoting many more of their interactions with God to thankfulness to expressions of gratitude and praise. And next time we read through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, be struck by the great models we're given of thanksgiving, of detailed explanations of the kinds of things for which we might praise God. And finally, we might note that 1 and 2 Thessalonians furnish us with examples that we might pray for ourselves and for others at every stage in our Christian lives. We noticed earlier when we looked at the schematic of the letters that they had some time words related to them. Parts of the letters and some of their prayers are related to thanking God for how he's started believers on their Christian journeys. Then we find that there are prayers seeking God's formation as believers persist in their Christian walks. And a number of these prayers are also crafted and regularly prayed throughout the Bible, but particularly here in Thessalonians with an eye that believers might continually and faithfully complete their life's journey. Again, these letters aren't the only places that we find such prayers, but each letter here is a short and tidy compendium of such prayers that we might learn from, that we might practise, that we might model, and that we might teach to others. And so I close with one such prayer from the middle of First Thessalonians. May the Lord Jesus make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. May he strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.